For me, every time I lost sight of the immediate and started thinking too far ahead or too big picture, it was overwhelming and that made me really despair. Like when you've hiked a thousand miles in, I don't even remember how long it took me to do that, like 20 days or whatever, and you realize that you're not even halfway and it was the hardest thing you've ever done. Like, that's just like mind boggling when you're laying there in your tent at the end of like yet another 40 plus mile day and you're just like destroyed. And yet, like, you know that if you go to bed and you, you wake up and you just focus on that next 40 miles, it's fine. That was Heather Anderson, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 177. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. I can't wait to introduce you to today's guest, Heather Anderson, known often by her trail name, Anish, and to dig into our conversation about her 2013 hike of the Pacific Crest Trail when she set the fastest known time. But before we get to that, I wanted to say a quick and heartfelt thank you to the 400 plus people that are in our Patreon community. It's their contributions of $1 or more per episode that literally make this entire show possible. This is a 100% listener supported show with no ads or sponsors, which you probably know by now. And that means that these conversations are financially supported by awesome regular people just like you. You can join us and learn more about all the fun bonuses that you get as a community member over at patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. I fully believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world we want to live in. And when you support this show, you're saying loudly and proudly that women's voices deserve to be heard and that no topic should be off limits due to fear or shame. You're also voting for a world where folks get paid for the work that they do because every single person involved in the creation of Real Talk Radio gets paid. That includes me, as well as my sound engineer, Adam Day, and every single one of my guests. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette if you'd like to join us today. I would love to have you. Okay, let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Heather Anderson, often known by her trail name, Anish. Heather is an absolute hiking legend. In 2018, she simultaneously became the first female triple-triple crowner, which means that she has hiked the Pacific Crest Trail, the Continental Divide Trail, and the Appalachian Trail three times each. And in that same year, she also became the first female calendar year triple crowner, which means that she hiked all three of those trails in one March to November season. She also holds the overall self-supported fastest known time on the Pacific Crest Trail, hiking it in just 60 days, 17 hours, and 12 minutes, which broke the previous men's record by four days. Additionally, she holds the female self-supported FKT on both the Appalachian Trail and the Arizona Trail and has hiked nearly 30,000 miles since 2003. When she's not out in the wilderness, Heather speaks regularly about her adventures and her first book, Thirst, 2600 Miles to Home, which chronicles her PCT record, was published earlier this year. I bought two copies of this book, which I loved, one for myself on my Kindle when it first came out, and one autographed copy that I'm giving away on the podcast Instagram account right now. Our Instagram handle is realtalkradiopod, so you can find us in the giveaway and more details over there. In this episode, Heather tells stories from her record-breaking PCT hike. We talk about fear, self-doubt, and the universally relatable process of searching for answers both inside and outside of yourself. 
Heather takes us through why she set out on the hike in the first place, what her preparation was like, what she was hoping to find on trail, and what ultimately happened for her in the end. This is a conversation, honestly, that's mostly about hope, overcoming obstacles, and choosing your own path. And as someone who has looked up to Heather for years, it was an absolute joy to have this conversation with her. The audio quality isn't quite as good as what you're used to on the show regularly. She called in on her cell phone, but it doesn't take away at all from the wonderful things that she has to share with us. And lastly, I just wanted to give a quick heads up that this episode starts with a conversation about trail food, including some specific calorie consumption numbers for our hikes. So if that's the type of topic that you find triggering and would prefer to avoid for any reason, you can skip ahead a few minutes. So all of that starts in just a moment. And as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at realtalkradiopodcast.com. All right, we are good to go. Heather, welcome to the show. Thank you. So this might be a really strange place to start, but um, I was wondering if you could share really quickly, because this applies to my question, um, with folks what you ate on your 2013 PCT FKT. I ate a lot of junk food, so cookies and candy and um, tortillas and lip bars and nut butter coconut oil, um, made a lot of tuna packets towards the end. Um, but yeah, a lot of, a lot of high calorie food. Yeah. I remember reading in the book that you, that coconut oil was one of the, you know, the small handful of things that you were eating and it immediately made me want to ask you, and I guess this is like a very hiker to hiker question to ask, but I tried adding coconut oil into my diet on a long hike and the poop situation was not good. And so I, <laughs> How do you, do you just like eat coconut oil straight? Do you put it in stuff? Like what's your coconut oil secret that is not uh, wind up being this like horrible poop thing? Well, I think it depends. Number one, any oil, if you consume too much of it one time, it's going to do that to you. So it usually needs to be mixed with other things. And um, the packets I have were like from Trader Joe's. And I think they were like maybe a tablespoon or a tablespoon and a half, which is, you know, probably about the right serving size for oil. And I mixed it into things like I didn't, I didn't eat them straight. So it was mixed into like my dried beans or um, I put it on my Oreo cookies, which sounds really weird, but um, it was just a way to get healthy fats into my diet since my diet was really carbohydrate heavy. Um, But no, I wasn't just taking shots of coconut oil. Well, yeah. I walked. Yeah. I mean, that seems, that sounds like efficient in theory, right? But when I read that, I was like, oh my God, how right. did she eat so much coconut oil? Like, I wish that I could have had that as a calorie source because I love coconut oil, but it does not love me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was only eating one packet a day, so it was like a tablespoon of coconut oil a day. Okay. Okay. See, that's, <laughs> I feel like that was just my personal yeah. question is, to, this is a, f- a fun place to start an interview, right? Tell me about your poop situation. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it did not have any adverse effects on me, I think, probably just because it was very moderation. Yeah. How I'd love to hear, I guess, while we're on the subject of food, how has your trail nutrition, I guess, if we're going to call it that, has it evolved like over the years, over the hikes? Is that something that you play with? Yeah. I mean, when I first started hiking, I I ate just everything and anything and, and mostly like little W's and cookies, you know, and the cheapest things because I was really, really poor. And as I've hiked more and gotten older. I've, I've learned to value quality of food and nutritional value of food more. Um, and so I eat a much uh, healthier, more balanced diet now on trail, emphasizing nuts and seeds and fruits and um, 
I'm also gluten intolerant, so I have to take that into consideration and just trying to take better care of my body. And I definitely feel like by eating, you know, real food and higher quality food, I perform better. Like I don't, I feel better all of the time. You don't have like a crash like you do after eating a Snickers. You know, if you're eating trail mix or something, it's more sustained energy. So I've definitely continually tweaked and improved my diet over the years. Do you find that you get really sick of eating the same thing now? That happens to me for sure. And you have hiked so much more than I have that I can't, like at this point, my hiking partner and I joke um, about something that we call the trail mix graveyard, like where food goes to die that you can like never want to look at again. <laughs> trail mix is definitely one mm-hmm. of those things. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. It, it, for me, I'll, I'll go on a, a stint, uh, especially in the midst of a hike, where all I want to eat is something like last year, on my long hike, I discovered something that I'm sure everybody else already knew existed. I had no idea. It was peanut, peanut butter M&Ms. So they're basically like gigantic Reese's pieces because they're just, they were just amazing. I, I loved Reese's pieces and I didn't know that peanut butter M&Ms existed. Anyway, so I found these at a store and like pretty much that was the only sweet snack food I ate for probably like two months. And I was just like, oh, I can't look at those anymore. And like, I've never wanted them since. Um, So, you know, and then like in 2013, when I hiked the PCT, I had sent myself trail mix, like a huge portion of all my calories was trail mix in all my boxes, like half my calories in all my boxes was trail mix because I was like the weirdo that always loved trail mix and never got sick of trail mix in my first, you know, three through hikes and never got sick of trail mix. So I sent myself all the trail mix, really nice trail mix, like Trader Joe's trail mix. And immediately from the very beginning of that hike, I could not eat trail mix. I couldn't get it down. So I was just opening my boxes and just throwing the trail mix into the hiker boxes. And so I would basically cut my calories in half automatically at every resupply because I didn't want my trail mix. But it was so bizarre because I love trail mix now. Like I've eaten it on other hikes. But just I couldn't eat it that year. So it is kind of weird. Sometimes your body's just fickle and it, and it knows what it wants and what it doesn't want. And sometimes it doesn't let you know in advance. Yeah, which is inconvenient when you've like sent yourself all of this. I made a couple of years ago for a hike what I thought was like this really good idea to get extra calories and all these things. It was like a mix of granola and powdered coconut milk and like chia and flax. And I was just, you know, my thought was mm-hmm. that I was going to add water to it and somehow it was going to be not disgusting. I don't know what I thought <laughs> was happening. And I added water to it right. and it was, you know, five or 600 cal- Like it was a big a portion of my daily calories too. And it was in every single box and I had meticulously packed it. And I think I ate it twice and was like, oh yeah, I want to die. Like I never want to eat this again. And so same thing, I would just like throw it out or throw it in hiker boxes. And I'm like, well, okay, I need to substitute that with something else because that's like a big chunk of what I was supposed to eat each day. And I hate it. Yeah. Yeah. That's the major danger with sending yourself boxes in advance that are prepackaged with food at home. That that seems like a good idea at home. And then it's often not when you get out there. Yeah. So time traveling a little bit, um, 2013, tell me the story of how you found yourself setting out to hike the PCT faster than anyone else. It was a very, I don't know. It was a very illogical time in my life. Uh, I knew I wasn't very happy with my life as it was. And I knew that I had always been happy through hiking in the past. But I felt like I needed to have some sort of new challenge or reason uh, to go out and hike 2,600 miles. 
And so trying to set the FKT seems like a good idea. I, I, it's, it's still kind of a, a fuzzy, illogical, in some ways it felt like it was this calling that I had been told, like I had this feeling that I had to do it, even though I didn't have any business attempting it because I was sick and injured and had no idea what I, what it would actually entail, which is probably good because not knowing what I was getting myself into was probably a very good thing. Um, so yeah, I was just in a, in a very tough like mental state, but yet felt like this like um, drive to go do this thing. And even though I didn't think it was going to be successful and I was terrified by the idea. Um, so it was a very odd and conflicted sort of time. And once I got on the trail, things were much better because once you're hiking, especially through hiking, like a long distance trail, things feel a lot more simple because then you're just focused on the goal, which is walking every mm-hmm. day. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of things that I love about hiking. And one of my favorites is the simplicity of, you know, like walk from point A to point B, don't die. That's your goal. <laughs> there's like something about that. that yeah, I really exactly. Like. Yeah. Um, yes. So I want to dig into this a little bit. Was there you know, a moment where you remember like hearing, you know, what the fastest known time was and something clicked for you of that's kind of a motivation for me. Like, was there a moment where you're like, this is something I'm going to try? Um, there were kind of a series of moments over, over my life. So in 2005, I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail the first time. And in the Sierra, my partner and I were passed by a man named David Horton, who was uh, running the trail, he was attempting to set a supported fastest known time. So he had crew meeting him at Rhodes, and at that time he had um, Brian Robinson with him, who was helping him through the Sierra because it was a high snow year. And uh, so this man like ran the trail in I think 65 days, and so he had people meeting him with a suit. So he had a little day pack, and um, so it was a fully supported um, run of the trail. And I remember when he went by us, like my partner at the time and I kind of were just like, wow, that's, that's crazy. Like he's trying to do the trail in like two months. And, you know, we talked when it was, it was like something to talk about because when you're through hiking, there's really not a lot of topics to talk about. And so we were talking about that. We talked about it off and on. And, and I mean, I think at one point we discussed like, well, how fast do you think you could hike the trail? And, and, um, kind of speculating about it and things like that. And my, I remember my partner was like, I think you could do it really fast. You know, you're really strong. And, you know, I think you could do the the trail, you know, pretty fast. And um, so it was kind of like, yeah, maybe someday I'll try to hike it, you know. And I certainly wasn't thinking anything in, in that realm. I was thinking like 90 days, you know, or something like that. And and then later in, um, you know, closer to my 2013 hike, I, um, I had a few times where I just thought about uh, it came up like, because I was in the ultra running scene and, you know, FKTs were becoming more on my radar and things like that. And um, so it just popped into my head from time to time. And then when I was out hiking in 2012 on the trail, I was just sitting in my camp one night. And that was when I had the, the logical, although it was actually illogical, realization that that was what I needed to do for my my challenge to figure out my life, that I was going to do this this fastest known time um, for the PCT. Yeah. Will you set the scene a little bit for what was going on in your life? Let's say the six to 12 months before you set out on that hike in 2013. Uh, Sure. So I had quit my job and I had gone and hiked a thousand miles on the Pacific Crest Trail and and Pacific Northwest Trails 
So I hiked from Ashland up to Washington and then done kind of a flippy do where I went out to Eastern Washington and hiked over to the PCT at the Canadian border and then hiked back um, to Southern Washington. So I did this thousand mile hike and uh, then that was the, where I said I was sitting in my tent and realized that that was what I wanted to do to try to figure myself out. And I came back from that and climbed some mountains and ran a couple hundred milers and promptly injured myself and wasn't able to really hike or run much at all for the next six months leading up to the day that I started from Campbell, California, intending to hike 40 plus miles a day for two months straight. Yeah, that's the part of the story that really gets me. Like, I think if someone were to think, you know, oh, what would it take to prepare and train to hike, you know, over 2,600 miles in like two months or whatever, I feel like someone would envision this like really rigorous training schedule, right? And something really active. And the fact that you were injured and not able to run or hike at all, it blows my mind. Yeah, I think I had done, I think I did like three or four, like 20-ish mile hikes slash runs in that six months. Yeah, I mean, and that's what you need to prepare for this, right? That's it. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And the rest of the time, I was doing two or three to five mile jogs, and, you know, a few times a week. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember prior to this what the most amount of miles were that you had hiked in a single day? I had done 50 in a day before a couple of times, but they were isolated. You know, the next day was basically a zero day. <laughs> it was just like a one, one-time thing. Yeah. So this really was, it sounds like a big leap of faith. There was nothing, there wasn't like this whole kind of storied history that you thought, okay, yeah, I have all of these things to prove that this is possible. Correct. I mean, I had run ultramarathons, so I'd run a decent amount of 50 milers and hundred milers, but they're one times. And then I had hiked the Wonderland Trail, which is 96 miles. And I'd done that in two and a half days. Okay. So it was two 40 plus mile days. And then the rest, whatever that ended up being. And that was like, one of the hardest things I had ever done. And I had done that in like, I think 2010. So three full years before I, I attempted this. And that was my only experience with doing back-to-back days that large. Yeah. So you mentioned um, the man that you met who was going for the supported record. Will you just quickly talk about sort of the different types of FKTs, like the difference between supported or self-supported and the rules you set yourself for your hike? Um. So there's basically three categories of fastest known time and supported means basically you can have as many people helping you in whatever way they want to help you, except you have to actually have your feet on the ground so nobody can carry you, but people can carry all of your stuff for you. You can have people meeting you as frequently as you want. You know, you have to do the work, but you don't have to do anything else. So um, you can be basically fully reliant on other people for your food, your water, for carrying your pack, etc. Um, and you can choose as much as as little support as you would like to have, but it still falls in that same category. And then there's unsupported, which means you receive nothing from anyone and you start your adventure with everything you will need for that entire time, except water. You're allowed to obtain water along the way. Um, but that means you, you never throw away your trash. You don't pick berries. You don't accept a beer that somebody offers you you know, from a cooler in their car when you pass through a trailhead, you don't get in a car, completely self-contained start to finish. Can't pick up a resupply box, nothing. So that type of an effort is really only tenable for short 
um, endeavors. I think the longest anyone has ever done in an unsupported manner is about 500 miles. Mm-hmm. And then the in-between category, which used to be called through hiker style, is self-supported. And basically it's the same as unsupported, except you can send yourself resupply boxes so you can acquire supplies along the way as long as you obtain them yourself. People don't bring them to you. And you can accept trail magic as long as it's not planned. See, somebody randomly offers you a beer at a trailhead, you can accept it. But you can't have your buddies drive up there because you told them you're going to be there and they pull out a cooler for you. Got it. Because that would make it supported. So it's kind of that middle ground. um, And that's really the only viable way to do a hike that's um, 2,600 miles long is in either a supported or a self-supported manner. And so for my hikes, obviously, I chose self-supported, and um, I also um, made sure that I adhered to the style of the previous record holder, which I feel like is very important to respect and honor the way the person before you did it. And Scott Williamson had always chosen to walk into and out of his resupply points rather than, like, hitchhiking. And so he uh, added extra miles to his hike by walking into and out of the towns where he got his resupplies. So I also did that. Oh, yeah. I'm interested. You mentioned this a little bit before um, and then in the book as well. You share that at the beginning of the hike, you were convinced that you were going to fail at the record attempt, that it wasn't possible. And I'm really interested to hear kind of what it was like to start something that required so much mental and physical strength while at the same time, like not believing that you could do it? Um, I think really just like, I didn't believe I could possibly be successful because it was so outside the realm of anything that I had actually done. And because I knew logically I had so much going against me, I was very sick, um, very anemic. And, you know, I was injured, you know, and undertrained. So I knew that just like logically, you know, there just wasn't much chance that I was going to be successful. Um, but as I mentioned before, I, I, I went into it feeling sort of like this was like a calling, like an inevitability, like the, the universe somehow was telling me I had to do this thing. And so I went into it feeling very like almost like a martyr, like that I had to go do this thing, even though it was probably going to be horrible and almost kill me. But somehow I just believed that I needed to do it and that um, there would be a, some sort of reward for that and hopefully clarity and direction on what I wanted to do with my life. Um, so it was a, a weird mix of feeling fearful because I knew that it was going to be very hard and very difficult and that I was under-equipped, but also um, like the sense of responsibility that I had to go do this and to find out what it was that the universe had in store for me. Isn't it funny that feeling of like, I feel like I'm supposed to be doing this, even if there's no, like you said, logical reason. Was that the first time that had ever happened to you? Had you ever had another experience where you were like, I feel called to do this, even though it doesn't make sense? Yeah, that was the first time I had felt that in in such an extreme way. I mean, there's definitely things where I was like, well, I just feel like going with like a gut feeling, but I never felt such a a sense of like, this is a terrible idea, but I really have to do it. Um, usually it was more of a, I have a gut feeling that I need to do this. And that seems like what I'm going to do, even though I don't necessarily know why. So yeah, it was just definitely the first time I really felt this overpowering sense that I needed to do it. Mm-hmm. Did you feel like 
and I mean, it's, I guess it's hard now maybe because you're thinking about it like well after the fact, but do you feel like at the time you could have like articulated your clear motivations? Like I want to do this because X, Y, Z, like, did you have a clear thing that you were hoping to get out of it aside from hoping to be able to break the record? At the time, I think that I wanted to just see what I was capable of. And that was really just the, the overarching idea was to test myself and see if I could do it and to um, kind of push my, my limits in a way that I hadn't been able to do running and I'd never done hiking. Um, And it just seemed like this, this ultimate test. And um, I guess I was hoping that by doing that, I would gain some, some clarity and some self-worth and, and some direction on, on what I wanted to do with my life. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So you've said the word clarity a couple of times. Was there something in particular that you were looking for clarity about? Uh, just what I was supposed to do with my life because I had um, kind of failed at the traditional lifestyle. And uh, I I didn't have anything at that time. I had, I had quit life, so to speak. I had quit my job and I had gotten rid of all of my stuff and I had, you know, severed relationships and, you know, I just had my stuff stored at a friend's place. And yeah, I just, I really had kind of quit everything that I had tried to do. Um, that was societally normative and I didn't really feel like I had any, anything left at that point except hiking. And so I was hoping that by doing that, it would help me figure out what to do after, um, I got done. Yeah. So going back to this idea of like self-belief, right. Or like what you believed was possible. Do you have a memory of the first time on that hike where you started to believe that you could do it, whatever it is, whether it's the record or finishing or getting the clarity that you wanted, was there some kind of evolution for you with your self-belief? There were a few points along the way where I felt this like optimism, like, you know, when I reached, you know, near pass in the Sierra and realized I had, you know, done what I didn't know that I could do. I'd maintained my 40 mile per day average through the desert and through the high Sierra, you know, to the top of that pass and done, you know, three of the major passes in one day, which had seemed, you know, impossible. Um, so that was like a point. And then there was a point in, you know, Northern California where I was like, my body is doing this thing. Like, I feel like I can do it. I feel powerful. I feel strong. But I always felt like there was going to be this point where the other shoe dropped and then I wasn't going to be able to go on or something was going to happen. Like the, the trail would close or who knew what. And, um, and then when I had that moment in, in central Oregon where I felt like the shoe did drop and my body was falling apart and I was like, okay, this is, this isn't going to happen. And, and I'm going to quit. And then, you know, I rallied from that. And then really for me, like when I walked across the Columbia River into the state of Washington, that was the first moment that I felt with all confidence that I was going to, I was going to do this thing. I was going to, it was inevitable now because I was so close. I was 500 miles from the border, you know, 500 miles left seems like a astronomical number, except if you've just done 2,100 this all of a sudden it just felt like it didn't matter if I had to army crawl my way to the border, I was going to get there. And, um, that was the first point that I really believed I was going to do it. How did that feel to you? Um, it was the whole, the whole hike was this roller coaster of emotion. And so it, it definitely felt really, um, I was really elated. Um, but I was also really exhausted. And I mean, I was just kind of a mess. I was like 
feeling amazing, but like bawling my eyes out at the same time. And then, you know, I just kind of up and down and up and down. And, uh, and then that night I was really sick (laughs) and I thought I had contracted GRDR or something because I was like throwing up and I don't know what it was. I was fine, but yeah, it was just like, kind of just like all these, like the minute you would feel like, yes, this is, this is great. I feel awesome. And then you don't. And I mean, I think that's the way through hiking is in general and it doesn't have to be at any speed. It's like often these these moments you feel the worst are followed by these moments you feel the best and vice versa. Um, You just constantly have the ups and downs. Yeah, I can relate to that. I mean, I feel like anyone who's done like a hard, long physical challenge can relate to the roller coaster of like, today's amazing. And then like five minutes later, today's terrible, right? There's enough time in the whole day to go through like every emotion in the world. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Man, there's there's so much in here that uh, that I'm curious about. When you first started, whether it was like long distance hiking in general or this hike specifically, what were you most afraid of? I was always afraid of wild animals. That was always my number one fear. Um, even going into that hike, I was just afraid of of dark of the dark and and wild animals. Um, so specifically, mountain lions. Um, I'd gotten over a lot of my other fears. Uh, you know, when I first started, I was scared of bears and um, lions and, you know, all the snakes, all the things that you're scared of when you haven't spent much time outdoors. And, and gradually I got over basically all of those fears. And except I was still scared of, of mountain lions and hiking in the dark. And, and so those were two very big um, lingering fears going into this hike in 2013. Yeah, I'm scared of hiking in the dark and also of mountain lions. And also, I feel like those are two like very legitimate fears, right? Like that's like totally right. makes sense. So, okay, so you're afraid of hiking in the dark, but you're hiking in the dark, what, like at least a couple hours a day, I would assume. Yeah, three to four hours a day I was in the dark. Okay. And that's, I mean, and this was June and July, right? So this was the most sunlight that you could have possibly had. And you were still hiking in the dark three to four hours a day. Yeah. So, I mean, down in Southern California, they don't have the super prolonged daylight hours like we have up here in mm-hmm. Oregon and Washington. Um, so it's more evenly split. But yeah, I mean, I was hiking um, 15 to 18 hours a day, every day. So it was definitely, some days I wasn't in the dark as much, you know, but other days I had to hike longer into the dark. And in a way, that was part of the reason that I did this hike was because I was like, well, this will finally get me over my fear of the dark, of hiking in the dark. Either that or I'll get eaten by a mountain lion, but, you know, I'm going to get over it one way or the other. <laughs> right, I'm either going to get over it or I'm going to die. Yeah. Well, I mean, and right, like, yeah, exactly. obviously like said in just a little bit, but also like, I think there's something really powerful about the simplicity of what you're saying. That's like the only way to get better at the thing is to do the thing, right? Or the only way to like get over the fear of the thing is to yeah. do the thing. And I mean, I feel like sometimes I do so much mental gymnastics to try to have another answer be the answer. <laughs> like, I don't want that to be the answer, but it is mm-hmm. like you have to do the thing. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that was really, you know, so that was like another thing going into it was just like, well, I'm never going to get over this fear if I keep going out and doing things where like I'm done before it gets dark or I'm running a race, but there's other people out on the course after dark. So I'm not alone, you know, and I was like, well, I'm just going to go do this thing and it's going to be terrifying and I'll get over it. And I did. But yeah, it was definitely kind of like finally acquiescing to the fact that the only way to get over the fear was to just accept that you're afraid and be brave enough to face it. Yeah. So, okay. So you go out there with this fear and I think this is the type of thing that someone could say, oh, I'm really scared of mountain lions. And I went out there and it was fine and I didn't see one, but that wasn't the case for you. So will you talk about a couple of your mountain lion encounters on this hike? Uh, yeah. I mean, they all ended well, obviously, because I am still alive. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I did, I, 
you know, the first mountain lion I ran into, I didn't even realize that was what it was until it was gone. And then I was like, oh, that was mountain lion. Like, because it was an instinctive reaction to it. And I just all of a sudden, you know, flashing my headlamp and yelling and raising my arms because it's like instinctively, like I knew this was like a big predator and I needed to scare it away. And I did that and it left. And then I was like, oh, that was mountain lion. And of course, then I have to keep hiking in the dark that night and looking over my shoulder to make sure it's not following me. But after that encounter, it gave me some more confidence. I was like, okay, well, now you've been hiking in the dark for, you know, over a month and you saw one mountain lion and, and nothing bad happened. It ran away. And, you know, like, okay, I feel pretty good about that. And then I see another one and that one didn't want to run away. And it's funny, like retrospectively, but at the time I was just so tired and exhausted and I had been supposed to camp, but I didn't camp because somebody had used the campsite as a bathroom and left toilet paper everywhere. So I was like, well, I'm not camping here. So I kept walking. So I wasn't even supposed to be out there where where I was when I saw this mountain lion. And so I just said, fine, eat me if you want. I'm tired. And like, I just pitched my tent and went to sleep. And it's like so funny to think that I went from being so terrified of this animal to like being willing to just like say, basically screw this and pitching my tent. And I think that there's something to be said for your body's needs. And the fact that I was just so tired that my body literally didn't care about anything but me getting to sleep. Like even this, like, I wasn't even afraid. I just wanted to go to bed. (laughs) Oh my God. That's so funny. Do you feel like by the end that you did get to the other side of these fears? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I definitely got over it out there. I, I really enjoy night hiking now and I do still think about mountain lions and I, I pay attention to my surroundings. Um, and I have seen mountain lions since my PCT hike and, uh, you know, they've all, it's all been fine. They've all gone away. Um, some with a little bit more needing more encouragement than others or, you know, some without even paying any attention to me, but it, it doesn't phase me as much anymore. It's like, okay, this is an animal just like other animals I've encountered. Just kind of like how I got used to bears. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know? What do you feel like your most consistent obstacle was on that hike? What was the hardest thing for you? Myself. Just uh, keeping myself um, motivated. Um, I was very tired all the time, you know, for obvious reasons. And a lot of it, I just wanted to, like, sleep. I just wanted to take a nap and, uh, you know, find constantly finding that motivation to, to keep moving until my miles were done for the day. And, and not get into a, a bad mood to remind myself that, you know, I'm the one who decided to go out here. I was the one that was doing this for myself and nobody was making me. And, um, if I really wanted to, I could like quit or, you know, take a day off. Um, but then I would probably be disappointed in myself because I didn't keep going. Um, so yeah, just, uh, definitely overcoming the mental, um, your brain tries to shut your body down. Um, for self-preservation, even though your body is fine and can keep going. Yeah. There's something in this that's really interesting to me. And I know there's no like specific answer, obviously, but this sort of question of deciding when to push versus like when to either quit or pivot. And I think that applies not just on the trail, right, but off the trail. And that's something that everyone can relate to. And like this, it's what you're describing is like such an extreme example of that. I think, I think it was in the book, or maybe I heard you say this somewhere else about like, there were a lot of days where you would cry the last like few miles or few hours of the day. Am I getting that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. Like that to me, I don't yeah, know. Or like, in the morning. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. So talk about that a little bit when like what, what's going through your mind that you're, you know, crying like this and then you're like, no, this is a good idea to keep going. Like, I'm just so interested in like how people weigh the decision to stop or not stop with something. Well, I learned really quickly that, uh, like we talked about already, your emotions are rapidly cycling, you know? And for me, every time I lost sight of the immediate and started thinking too far ahead or too big picture, it was overwhelming. And and that made me really despair. Like when you've hiked a thousand miles in, I don't even remember how long it took me to do that, like 20 days or whatever. And you realize that you're not even halfway and it was the hardest thing you've ever done. Like that's just like mind boggling when you're laying there in your tent at the end of like yet another 40 plus mile day and you're just like destroyed. And yet, like, you know, that if you go to bed and you, you wake up and you just focus on that next 40 miles, it's fine. And so I really, I learned in some ways that it was good to let myself cry and to like vent the frustration of how hard it was rather than trying to ignore it. I mean, it really helped me be in touch with, you know, and be honest with myself about this is very difficult and this is the hardest thing you've done, but like you're growing from this and you're learning from this. But also, you know, there was definitely the cutoff point at which I was like, okay, you've cried enough. Start, stop thinking about how hard this is and how big this is and how much you still have left to do and start thinking about the fact that you have to get water in five miles. And then five miles after that, you have this junction and focusing on what you're actually doing. And, and in a way, that's like a very valuable lesson, I think, for, for life in general to just focus on the task at hand, be present in what's going on and not, you know, think about, well, what if I get cancer and I die, you know, or anything like that, you know, not worrying about the the existential stuff and just focusing on your life right in front of you. Um, Not be planning your grocery list while you're, you know, drinking your coffee and, and, you know, spending time with your loved ones, you know, just one thing at a time. And uh, because too many things at once, too overwhelming. Yeah. Ooh, I love what you were saying about the value of almost like being like relentlessly honest with yourself, right? Like not trying to pretend that you weren't feeling how you're feeling. I find that for me, that also helps a lot too, to just be able to be like, wow, I'm in pain or I'm lonely or I'm sad or I'm this, or this is really hard, right? To like not pretend that that's not the case. And then, but being able to like find sort of the balance between acknowledging that, like acknowledging your feelings, but not like letting yourself drown in them, right? Which is, I think, what you're talking about. This idea right. that, like, yeah, this is really hard, and like, I'm gonna let myself cry, but like, at some point, I'm just gonna get on with it. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Do you feel like that's carried off trail for you? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, um, allowing yourself to to process what you feel and, and not invalidate your your emotions, and you know, and not invalidate yourself. Be like acknowledging that what you experience is real. Um, and then, you know, also though knowing at what point you have to step forward and, and continue on and not wallow in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> and I think, again, there's not necessarily like a right answer with that, right? It's like kind of, you just learn yourself through experience, like what that is for you. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So I was talking to some folks in, um, 
my like listeners community and stuff, uh, knowing that we were going to have this conversation and just kind of asking if there were questions that folks wanted me to ask you or what they were curious about. And it was interesting to hear that it's, there seemed to be this like common theme that was coming up of, you know, in order to do something like this, like you have to be like incredibly talented and incredibly special. And like, obviously you're an amazing athlete, but I'm interested if like, you think that that's true. Like, do you think there's something about you that lets you do this, that is special? Do you think you just are, have like a higher pain tolerance? Do you think you're more stubborn? Like, I, cause I've heard you use the word stubborn too, I think in the talk you gave yesterday, but, um, I'm just interested, like what you think it is about you that like makes you well-suited to do this type of stuff. Well, I mean, I definitely think that there's a, a good combination of, of mental, physical, and emotional skills that can help you do anything, you know, and I think that the people that are well-suited to long distance hiking are, are different from those who are not, um, for, various reasons and you know definitely certain aspects of just being me you know I really like being by myself like people are always like well didn't you get lonely and I'm like no not really because I just don't get lonely I don't mind being out there by myself um you know and things like that so I mean it's a very solid solitudinous journey to like be pushing yourself really hard and being by yourself this entire time so sure there's like some definite um definite things that have helped me enable that but in the end, what it really comes down to is, is your drive. And I think that whatever it is you want to do in life, like if you have the drive for it, you can develop the skill set to complete it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, if it's what you truly want, um, you don't have to necessarily be born with a set of skills, um, to do things, uh, you can obtain those. Um, and so for me, you know, yeah, I was born with probably an extra heaping dose of stubbornness and, and, you know, being okay with being alone and, you know, obviously I must have okay biomechanics and things like that. But, you know, for me, I've always been very driven to complete things and to do things and see things through. And um, so that's helped me achieve a lot of things in life, not just this hike, because I have this, this drive um, intrinsically to go out and complete tasks that I set my mind to. Yeah. I love this idea that you're speaking to of, you know, like, sure, we might have some like natural talents or, you know, like inclinations to be better at certain things than other things. And that's, you know, true for lots of folks in lots of different areas. But sort of this reminder that most of the things that we want to do are skill based and you don't have to have been like doing something since you were three years old, like you can learn skills. And it sounds like kind of silly to say that out Mm -hmm. loud. But I think sometimes, especially like as adults, we forget that you actually can just like learn to do something that you don't already know how to do. I don't know. I like hear that coming out. Right. Yeah. 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 Sometimes we feel like the learning all took place by the time we graduated high school or college. And and then that's just what we know for the rest of our lives instead of realizing, oh, you can just learn to do something else anytime you want to. If you want, you just have to do it. Yeah. I mean, because you didn't, you know, grow up doing lots of hiking, right? Correct. I didn't. I didn't hike until I was in my 20s. Yeah. So there you go. You don't have to have been doing the thing you want to do since you were super young in order to be able to do it. <laughs> right. Um, so you finished this hike, you set this seemingly impossible record. Then what? You got off trail, went home. What happened next? Uh, I got a job at a food co-op and worked doing that um, and tried to figure out what this meant for me. Uh, because, you know, I hadn't actually figured out what I wanted to do with my life any, any more than 
uh, I had being on when I started out, other than the fact that I knew I needed to spend as much time as possible out on the trail. And uh, so I just uh, went home and tried to figure out how that was going to look in practice. Um, and it took me a, a few years of trying different avenues to make it happen. But um, yeah, I mean, mostly I went home and just got on with life. Yeah. So you said that you didn't necessarily find that, you know, big moment of clarity that you had perhaps been searching for. Did that feel disappointing for you? No, because what I realized was that there wasn't going to be like a big aha moment of clarity. Uh, What it was going to be was really getting in touch with myself and finding um, out, you know, the answers that I already knew and that being outside in the mountains and in nature was of utmost importance to me into my health and well-being and uh even though i had known that i hadn't really been able to accept it um but the hike was validating and and helped me accept that about myself and and empowered me to go back and live a life that wasn't a traditional structure in order to spend as much time out there as possible mm-hmm. yeah yeah, it's interesting. I feel like sometimes when we set out on a, I don't know, a journey or a goal or something, you know, wanting clarity or wanting this specific end result, and then it doesn't happen, but maybe we got something else out of it. Do you feel like there were some specific things that either you walked away with or things that you knew about yourself that you didn't know before? Or I guess what I'm asking is like, how did that experience change you? Do you think? Uh, well, I definitely um, became braver um, and more more willing to fears. I also learned to accept myself and um, circumstances, um, except that I didn't want to live a normal life and I was okay. And, you know, I learned um, that it was mostly important to be true to myself um, and to follow my path, whatever it was going to be, and to trust that um, it was going to be okay as long as I kept staying true to myself. Um, and so those were really important growth lessons that enabled me to move forward in life. Yeah. For you specifically, when you're being true to yourself, what does that look like? Um, specifically for me, it means not um, prioritizing acquisition. It means not um, prioritizing luxury. It means prioritizing time in nature, authentic relationships, time with um, the people I'm at that matter to me. And living a, a healthy life that uh, is as low impact on this planet as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so in the years, I mean, obviously that was what, 2013, right? So time has gone by. Like, yeah. And so do yeah. you feel like that's been like the your compass, right? Like trying to make decisions based on does, you know, this fit in with this compass, even if it's not necessarily like traditional life, you feel like that's like what you just described. Is that what drives you now? Yeah, that's what I've done ever since. Yeah. Um, I'm always interested for with, I mean, I think there's lots of different ways to live, you know, non-traditional lives or have non-traditional choices or jobs or relationships. I'm always interested in, I don't know if sacrifice is the right word, but like what people are willing to sacrifice in order to have the things that they want. Do you feel like there is anything that you had to give up or any like clear trade-off that you made? Yeah. I mean, there are a lot, um, because they aren't important to me. They don't feel like sacrifices. Mm -hmm. But I find that a lot of people who say to me, well, you know, how do you afford to hike all the time? Or or they feel like I must have this magic way of 
of financing my hikes or that I have a trust fund or something. And when I tell them that the actual nuts and bolts, it's, it's things that people aren't necessarily going to be willing to do. And, and for me, it's, it's all about living simply and you know, live very frugally. And, um, I feel like it's very easy to spend as much time out in the mountains if your time not in the mountains is basically the same as your time in the mountains. So for instance, when you're out on a long distance trail, you spend money on food and occasionally maybe a hotel. That's pretty much how I live my life off of the trail. I don't go out to the movies. I don't go out to restaurants. I don't um, own a home. I don't uh, spend money on new clothes. I don't really buy anything that's not essential. That is not essential. And I don't find that to be much of a trade-off, but I think that most people would find that to be very aesthetic um, because they are, it's living without any sort of extra anything, but it allows me to not need to make a lot of money, allows me to spend most of my time out in the wilderness and I have what I need. I have what I need to be happy. And so um, everybody is going to have their own path and, and way of um, achieving that and achieving goals and, you know, whatever their quote-unquote trade-offs will be. Um, they have to be done willingly and um, with your end goal in sight. And so for me, it's very easy if I'm tempted to make a purchase on something um, that I consider like frivolous. It's like, well, that's worth how many days on the trail, you know, because I know how much money it costs me per day to be on trail. Hmm. And it's easy. It's like, well, is that worth six days on the trail to me? Yeah, it is actually. Okay, I'm going to do that thing. Or is that worth six days on the trail to me? No, no, it's not. It's easy to say no. Um, so framing things um, accordingly can really help. Yeah. I mean, I love this idea of getting really specific with yourself about what you want, what it takes to have that thing or achieve that thing. And then, yeah, like, what are you willing to do or not do in order to have it? And I think like even that idea of, okay, is this purchase like worth six days on the trail? It's such a specific way of looking at it, but I feel like that's the best way to evaluate choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So after, I mean, and obviously I know this isn't the only FKT that you've set. I'm interested this many years later, do you feel a pressure, whether like internally or externally to like keep doing more, bigger, faster, like has your drive or perhaps your motivation for like setting out on adventures like this changed over the years? Like, where are you at now with that? Um, I felt that pressure after my first hike, the first uh, FKT, the one that I write about in Thirst. And the pressure was somewhat external, but it was also predominantly internal. And it was this idea of like still doubting my abilities and my self-worth. Like I had learned to accept myself, but I still doubted myself. And there was definitely this feeling of I couldn't possibly have actually done that. That had to be a fluke, like completely accidental because I knew going into it that I couldn't do it. Like, because I didn't, I was injured. I was sick. I was, you know, undertrained all of these things. Like there was no way I could do this. And then I did. And it felt like it couldn't possibly have happened. And so, you know, I went out in 2015 to the Appalachian trail and basically tried to do it again for mostly the reason of proving to myself once and for all, that I had self-worth and I had ability. Not that you have to be able to set an FKT to have self-worth, but I've had this doubt 
that I was even good at what I thought I was good at, which was hiking. And um, so to really feel like I could um, believe in myself, I had to do it again. And that was the end. When I did that, I didn't need to do it anymore. Everything I've ever done has been for myself. Mm -hmm. been internally motivated. Even that hike, I was doing that not because I wanted to be like the woman who had the FKT on the PCT and the AT. I was doing it because I was like, man, if I can't do this again, then clearly like that was an accident and I need to be able to do this a second time and prove it to myself. Um, so once I walked off that trail, I didn't need to do anything bigger or better or faster, or prove anything to anyone, including myself. Um, it was just everything I, I've done. I, I do because I feel like it or I want to. Yeah. I mean, it's awesome. I think I could imagine to have gotten to that place. It's something that I still struggle with. that I think a lot of people struggle with of like tying self-worth in with achievement or like productivity mm -hmm. or right. Like I'm really proud of myself because I did like this shiny thing that other people can look at. Right. And being able to kind of strip that away right. and be like, actually like I'm worthy and I belong and you know, I matter and deserve love and all these things, even if I don't have this like gold ribbon, you know? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I know we're coming up on time. Um, the last thing that I would love to ask you, obviously, I mean, you have such a deep knowledge and experience base about backpacking. So I don't even know if there, it's possible to synthesize down into something concise. But for someone who, let's say, is interested in getting into backpacking or is new to it, do you have either like a piece of advice or is there every, anything that you think that aspiring hikers should know that you wish you had known? Yeah. So, gosh, it kind of really comes down to the individual person and, and what their goals are. Um, but my, my biggest piece of advice is that I tell people is that don't let fear stop you. And it's not just related to hiking. It's, it's related to everything in life. If it's something you want to do, don't not do it because you're afraid, you know, I mean, and if you're afraid to go camp in the woods, drive to a trailhead, walk a quarter of a mile, set up your tent. If you get scared, you can hike back to your car and you can leave. Or you might be like, just fine. And the next time you can go a mile into the woods and um, kind of that desensitization to fear, like we talked about earlier. Um, and in the process, you learn valuable skills. And so I guess it's important to just remember that everybody starts somewhere. Like I had never backpacked in my life when I started backpacking because everybody starts somewhere and that somewhere is always zero. And I came to a late in life and had to figure everything out kind of the hard way, but, um, it's always baby steps. You know, you, you just go out and you, you know, it's good to pay attention to what's working and what's not working and, and don't be afraid to try new things and, and ask advice and have mentors and just keep going. Um, and it's okay too, if you think you're going to like something and you don't like it. Um, mm -hmm. there's lots of people I've met on long distance trails that are absolutely miserable out there, but they don't want to quit but they aren't enjoying it or they get out there and they've been out for a couple of weeks and they're like, man, this is not what I thought it was going to be. And I don't like this. And then they go home and that's okay. You know, just because you think you're going to like something doesn't mean you will. So I think it's okay to, um, to experiment and to trust yourself, to know whether you actually want to keep doing something or not. So not being um, afraid that you're not succeeding or feel like a failure. It's, it's all, it's all just, your journey in life to experience how you wish and uh, 
maybe backpacking isn't your thing. Maybe day hiking is. I know a lot of people who only like to day hike and that's perfectly fine. So yeah, just uh, experiment and learn and don't be afraid to try new things. Yeah, I love that. Like, don't be afraid to try new things. And also it's fine if something that you try is not for you and that you don't, I like, you know, what you're talking about about day hiking. You don't have to do the most extreme version of the thing in order for it to count. (laughs) You can do whatever version works for you. Right, exactly. Exactly. Do what what you like. So your book is called Thirst. Um, Why the title Thirst? Uh, So it's a a multifaceted thing. So um, I start out in the desert of California and it's very dry. So the very obvious thing is that I'm thirsty a lot uh, at the beginning of the hike. But more than that, it's about my thirst to be on the trails, um, my thirst to find out what I'm capable of, um, and my my thirst and desire to um, see, you know, if I could do this thing that I set out to do and to grow and to spend as much time in the mountains as possible. So it's more about kind of the emotional side um, than the actual like physical side of being thirsty, but um, it has a lot of, a lot of meaning. Yeah. I love it. What's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks? Uh, so Instagram is my social media of choice, um, but I also do have Facebook and Twitter. I just don't get on there as often, um, but they're all Anish Hikes, A-N-I-F-H-H-I-K-E-S. Awesome. I will put links to that in the show notes, links to where people can grab your awesome book in the show notes. Heather, thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I want to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. So go say hi. He's the best. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Elizabeth. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi. So we're going to do a fun little round of rapid fire questions if you're ready. I am ready. I think. (laughs) I think. Um, Tell me one of the most pleasurable things you've done in the past month. Oh, past month. Um, I house sat for a friend uh, and she had this huge, amazing house in the suburbs with this like amazing multi-spout shower and it was just me and the three cats and a dog and this giant couch for an entire week (laughs) and I live with roommates so that was super pleasurable being able to have this gigantic house all to myself with animals that sounds incredibly luxurious I also would like cats and really nice showers that sounds mm -hmm, yeah mm -hmm, yes yeah, it was perfect. Uh, when my friend said, oh, you can use our shower. It's great. I was like, how great is the shower? It was great. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Ever since moving into the van, I'm like, have my ears open a lot more to like, if friends need house sitters, right? Or that exactly what you're talking about, that type of thing and keeping my plans flexible. I'm, I was always planning on going back to Ben for Thanksgiving, but uh, I have good friends who are going to be going out of town for, you know, like around a month during that time. And they were like, you can stay at our place. You know, there's a big bathtub. There's then I was like, I will be there. Like, yes. <laughs> you know, and so being able to like spontaneously take advantage basically of bathtubs is what my life has become. So I hear you. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> What's one goal that you're working toward right now? 
Right now, uh, the biggest goal that I'm working towards is uh, a PR in the marathon. Um, I am working with a coach for the first time ever, and I had kind of a a handful of years where I wasn't really trying at running, and I'm actually kind of trying again. So I am looking forward to running Chicago in October because so far it's going well. Yeah, good for you. It feels good to care about stuff. I mean, it also feels good to take breaks, right? If that's not where you're at, yeah. but it's nice. Yeah, no, it, it is feeling good to to care about it again. <laughs> yeah, I feel like so much specifically with running or with anything that a kind of goal that is so measurable like that, right? Like you either meet the goal or you don't. And I think there's something in that that sometimes we shy away from because the disappointment can be really acute and really clear. And I feel like one of the things that I always have to remind myself is that I can handle being disappointed. Yes. Yes. And it's scary when you think about being able to hit that goal. Like there's a little bit of fear in that of realizing your potential. Um, So working through the mental side of it has been tougher than the physical side of it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What's one impactful money related decision that you've made recently? I have been trying to not spend as much money on records. Um, I usually on payday go to the record stores around town and see what I can find and have been cutting that back to maybe one visit or two visits a month instead of four. So that's probably the biggest one right now. Yeah. What's a challenge or like struggle or frustration that you feel like you're facing these days? Feeling like I don't have enough time for everything I want to do. Um, to time management. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Super relatable. <laughs> <laughs> What's one topic that you'd love to hear more honest conversations about? What do you wish people were talking about? Um, I love hearing super honest conversations about sex and sexuality and gender and all the topics relating to that. Um, it's It ties in with my work. Uh, so it's really awesome seeing that change in the world and in media, just people being more comfortable with that. And I hope that it continues to go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, no, I, yeah. I, I, to, I totally agree. So you're a member of our Patreon community, our support squad, which means that you're one yeah. of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you make a small and powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show. Can you share why you decided to support the show? Yeah. Um, so I had actually, I'd been following you for years on Instagram and listen to the show periodically. And a couple months ago, because I don't think I've been a Patreon member that long, but a few months ago, I was in a spot financially where I was able to actually put money towards things that I support and want to see more from. And the Real Talk Radio podcast was one of those things. And I just, I really love all of the different content that you put out and the updates. And like, I still love following you on Instagram with all your adventures and everything. So it was just time uh, for me to be able to support something that 
I support. Mm, yeah, that means so much to me. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to share where you live and maybe a social media link if you want to so people can say hi? Sure. Um, I am in Richmond, Virginia, over on the East Coast, and I can be found on all social media at Liz Sassy Molassi. Um, kind of like the picky granola that came out. (laughs) I love that so much. (laughs) And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want lots of bonus content, plus other fun stuff, opportunities, extras like this, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $1 or more per episode. Your support is exactly what allows this show to continue. And I can't wait to get to know you better once you've joined our community. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together. 